Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on My podcast, I am joined by Peter Kruger. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. And where are you joining us from? Currently, I'm stuck in South Africa due to um, lockdown regulations. Um, so not the ideal situation for me with a lot of my work happening in the UK. But I must say there are worse places to be stuck. So, um, so far, so good. And you're the director in two different positions, one for Cognacity and one for the Centre for Health and Human Performance. What are your roles there? So it's an interesting situation with Cognacity being based in London and then the Centre for Health and Human Performance being based in South Africa. Um, We have a a great working relationship between the two entities because with the CHHP, we are connected to Northwest University, which gives us a lot of resources at our disposal. So it's one of our um, specific external research partners as well. Um, But at Cognacity, my role is more as the Director for International Operations. So uh, I pretty much look after all our programs, uh, corporate and sports, um, ranging from the UK, uh, sorry, from the US mainly, a little bit in the UK, but then anything Europe, Middle East, Africa, and as far as the Far East. Uh, While my role back at the Center for Health and Human Performance is kind of as a... um, directing the operations to a point where we look at the the various areas of psychology, sports science, and then biokinetics as well. So fairly similar with a lot of overlap, which makes it easy that it's not two completely different hats I need to wear, um, but definitely looking at different target markets. And how did you become the wearer of both those hats? Just life is a fascinating thing. So just how things developed. Obviously, as you can tell from my accent, I've been born and bred in South Africa. And um, after qualifying as a clinical psychologist, uh, my wife and I, who's a medical doctor, we thought we'll go to the UK, do a bit of traveling, get some professional experience. And um, that one year turned out to be 12 years at the end. And um, things just developed from there. Um, I I worked initially at the Nightingale Hospital in central London, and I met uh, a psychiatrist, consulting psychiatrist, Dr. Gary Bell. And one day we were talking and um, he I was saying, I looked at my client load and it looks like I'm seeing about more than half of the referrals coming from you. And he kind of, as a joke, said, um, do you want to start our own thing? Maybe we're, we're done with the hospital. And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. And I never thought of it again until about three months later, he said, there's an opportunity in the city and um, are we willing to go our own way? So that's how we started Cognacity back in 2007. And um, as things then evolved and we started expanding our footprint uh, from a Cognacity perspective, in 2015, the opportunity opened up to open a, an office in South Africa. And I jumped on the opportunity to move um, back and forth between London and South Africa. And then at that point in time, I got approached by the university saying there's this opportunity uh, as a director for the then Institute of Psychology. Um, to see if we can't get some synergy out of what we do at Cognacity and what's happening at the university and kind of things developed from there and eventually morphed into these two particular roles that I have at the moment. And why it's a clinical psychology? What happened? What led you into that at the start? See, that's all about the why. And uh, it's a great question 
my initial plan always was to become a fighter pilot in the Air Force. And then obviously being in South Africa and a very interesting time in our country's history, um, around the, the 94 elections, um, when the new government took over, the first um, post-apartheid government, um, they changed the entire system. So they, they placed the moratorium on all new intakes uh, in the Air Force for about a three-year period. And that was smack bang the period I was supposed to be joining. So I always had a fascination with um, not necessarily people, but people's behavior and the science behind people. And my fallback position then was, well, I enjoy sport, maybe a bit of sports psychology, enjoy the idea of uh, understanding the human mind a bit better. And that's how I started my journey, um, getting into the field of psychology. And not sport. The aim was always to do sports psychology, but interestingly enough, in South Africa, there's no category for sports psychology. So you have to qualify either as a clinical or counseling psychologist first, and then you can specialize in sports. It's only when I um, went over to the UK where it became easier to really find traction properly in sports. And uh, at that particular point, although I didn't want to requalify, it's great to have a qualification as a clinical psychologist because you can cover both angles. I started doing a lot more work in the elite sports domain. And any particular sports or, or across the board? I played rugby growing up and, and cricket. So I always had a fascination with specifically team sports because it's it's a fascinating thing. I mean, even something like cricket, which is kind of a individual team sport because it is you in the middle of the pitch, but it's still you as part of a team. And in rugby, we are so dependent on the, the 14 people around you as a player. And so the dynamic between this, how do you get teams to function at a high level? Um, Things around just individually, how do you get the best to be the best that you can be? Great fascination with this. And once I started doing the clinical work and I realized the mechanisms where I specialize clinically in anxiety disorders, it's the same mechanisms involved in high performance. It became a very interesting overlap for me to see how do I transfer some of the skills from the clinical domain um, into the, the, the field of elite sports. Now, um, to make that transition, it was quite interesting because my thesis was supposed to be on a clinical matter, but I had a, a supervisor at the time who was very open-minded about the idea. Now, it's a great thing, again, if we talk about the, the why you do what you do. He told me that if you're going to go through the trouble of doing some research on this, don't, don't think small. Kind of think where you want to end up one day. If you talk about work in sports, what's the highest level you want to reach? And at that point in time, being in the Southern Hemisphere, Super Rugby was pretty much the, the ultimate level you could reach. So I said, well, I, I'd love to be, before the age of 30, a psychologist with a Super Rugby team. So he said, why not then see if you can't do your research on Super Rugby? I thought I'll take a few, some of the top rugby schools, perhaps just to start small. And they said, no, if you do it, do it properly. And we got in touch with the SA Rugby Union and they liked the idea of exploring things a little bit more around the psyche of the players. And I, I managed to do my master's and then later my PhD on the um, performance side of things on super rugby players in South Africa to look at um, what sort of psychological skills are involved in on-field performance and specifically the coping within the high pressure environments. And it's interesting then how things developed because when I went over to the UK, um, about three months out of rugby, I thought, I love the work at the hospital. This is great, the clinical work, but I'm really missing rugby. So I started Googling which teams are um, effectively kind of perhaps in need of a psychologist. And at that point in time, Harlequins, the current premiership team, they were National Division One, kind of on the brink to break back into the premiership. And I thought, okay, this is a good bet. Probably they might need some help, but they're not so established that they can't do without any additional support. 
got in touch with them. And um, I, the then director of rugby, Dean Richards, I think he's currently still with the Newcastle Falcons. Um, he got me and said, I'll give you three weeks to do a proper presentation to the management team. I did that in three weeks time. And about two weeks later, they came back and they offered me a position. And that was the start of things in the UK for me from an elite sports perspective. Eventually spent nine seasons with Harlequins before moving on. And they're just opening up a, a range of other doors as well. And you mentioned right at the beginning about there being a correlation with anxiety and high performance, particularly in sport. Why do you think there is an increased anxiety levels there? The, the interesting bit, if you look at the working of the human mind, the very inner part of the brain is called the limbic system. It's, it's your brain's emotional center. So the way we interpret pressure, doesn't matter what you do. And, and this is what we tell corporates as well. Uh, it doesn't matter which country you're in, which organization you work for, what job you do. It's the same human brain we use to interpret pressure. So sports people, the, it's a part called your prefrontal cortex. It's the part of your brain just behind your skull above your eyes. All your executive functions, everything that makes you a smart human being is situated there. So things like judgment, decision-making, uh, word processing, analytical thinking, deductive reasoning, error correction. So all those higher order skills, the executive functions you need to make you good at what you do is situated and regulated by this part of the brain. Now, this is connected through a super highway of brain paths back into that emotional center, which effectively means this front part of the brain is where the voice in your head sits. This kind of the, the dialogue, the running narrative that you have and the content of what you think about and how you think about it feeds back into that emotional center. And this is why thoughts have such a big impact on the emotions that we experience. And the interesting thing is if you look at a high pressure environment, I've seen this so many times where a player will the day before it became a fly off will take penalty kicks, easily slot 10 out of 10 from anywhere on the field. The next day in front of a stadium filled with 60,000 people and a few more a million watching on TV, a kick that is three times as easy as anything it did in training suddenly just seems to go Hayward, just hooks the thing or shanks it. And there's no way you can explain physiologically how you can lose your skill set in a matter of 12 hours. But what happens is as soon as the voice in your head starts changing, you start thinking about consequence, um, about how bad things would be, chemically something shifts in the emotional center and it interferes with motor execution. So it means just you, you, the fluency of motion becomes so much more difficult and execution just sometimes unfortunately falls by the wayside. That's the, that's the same reason if I can throw in a different example where if you're a golfer, a typical five foot putt would be a very easy thing to do. But if I suddenly say, let's put 10K on that shot, the same five foot putt, which you will easily sink 10 out of 10 times on a putting green feels like a 20 footer because all of a sudden your mind goes about the risk and the reward and what might happen. And this is where we start messing ourselves up as human beings, is this inability to control the voice in our heads. And can we ever control that voice? Can we ever shut <laughs> it down? Um, some people probably more so than others. That factor, it's called cognitive reactivity. We can nowadays measure this. And it's interesting we do this with sports people because some people have a slightly better tendency to have a lower level of noise in their heads. But the ones who have higher levels of intrusive thoughts, they need to develop the skills to do so. So it's by no means a foolproof plan, and nor is it um, guaranteed that you can control this. But at least there are a lot of things we can do. And if you talk about um, kind of the, the typical critical moment reactions where you play in a World Cup final or it's an Olympic final race that you have to run, 
the ability to do this will have a huge impact on that secretion of the stress hormone cortisol into your system. And again, from a physical execution perspective, it makes a difference. So the short answer is yes, you can. The long answer is this is why as psychologists, we still have jobs because it's such a difficult thing for us to do continuously that unless you keep on paying attention to it, it's easy to fall back onto the old bad habits. You mentioned that there's a huge correlation, again, with sport and business, that it's the same brain, essentially, that's operating in the same environment. So it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. This is the same process. There are obviously significant differences in a in a corporate space in comparison to a sports space. So um, I think one of the big differences is in sports, you are exposed every single weekend. So the mistakes you make, you can't just sort of a brush under the carpet. Um, it's not just you and your line manager knowing about this. So I think the pressure becomes significantly more. But there are other challenges and, and differences. But the key thing is the way we interpret pressure. It's all to do with understanding what creates the pressure and therefore applying the mechanisms to change this. And I think there's a lot we can learn across organizations as well. I think businesses are sometimes much better at organizational structure uh, to create enabling environments where in teams, um, specifically some sports, you still get a very much a command and control model where the coach or the general manager or the, um, the CEO would be the one calling the shots and everybody has to jump. And I think businesses are a little bit ahead sometimes the, the way they set up the environment. But there's a lot to be learned, and but ultimately we're human beings and pressure is something if we don't know how to deal with it that will get to us. So when you talk about companies being a little bit further ahead, do you think that's because they've got a very clear vision and they've got the values that they've fo they're focusing on? And, and or was there something mm. else? No, listen, it's, it's gonna sound like I'm stealing your idea here, but we always say start with why. This is one of the most crucial things in, in any sport, any business, any organization, any individual sort of approach that you take. Unless you know why you do what you do, um, it's going to be very difficult to have sustainable performance in any area. And I think the organizations that we work with, some of the big companies out there, well-known household names, um, what they do right is firstly, they, they are vision-based. So they, they have the why, they have the dream, they know what they're chasing, and they are values-driven. And I find this fascinating that the great organizations we work with aren't ones where the, the values are stuff that you stick up against the wall somewhere or it's something that gathers dust in a drawer. It's, it's something that the people live. And it's something where you see it in the behavior, you see it in the communication, you see it within smaller teams as well. And I think that that's the key difference. You can have the best business plan in the world if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing and you don't have that vision that you are chasing, always going to struggle. Well, it's music to my ears because that's the whole premise of the podcast. So I, I, I get what you're exactly. saying. <laughs> so after your nine years at Harlequins, where did you go on to then? So I've always had a bit of a hybrid approach. So although I did Harlequins from 2000 and end of 2005 onwards, I was on loan for one season from Harlequins to the Brumbies in Australia, based in Canberra, in Super Rugby, which was a fascinating experience just for the season. And while being back there, we, we got involved in a few other strains as well. So with Olympic sports, specifically GB rowing, uh, got involved in a little bit later than in GB swimming as well. So um, it, it, it was always great to have that side and then the corporate side of things. So at Cognacity, we kept on looking at large organizations, um, specifically professional services in London, law firms, accountancy firms, and then a few other interesting 
big household names as well. So I always had these uh, various irons in the fire, but it kept it not only interesting for me, but it specifically helped me to learn a lot from the business environment and carry it over to sport and vice versa. Now, it was, it's always fascinating to see the, the sports people love being compared to businessmen and the business people love being compared to elite sports people. So they, there's this interesting crossover where we try and, I know it sounds wrong if I say it, but I like to use that, that saying, we, we try and big borrow and steal whatever we can from a, a process perspective and go and apply it in different environments and see the impact that it will have. So stayed with Quinns for the nine seasons. Um, before the 2012 Olympics at Cognacity, we, we were appointed the official service providers for the, the London Olympics to provide the, the mental health services. So based at the polyclinic, that year I stepped away from Harlequins because we were quite busy with GB rowing. I saw a few um, track and field athletes for UK athletics as well. So it was a fascinating year, completely out of my comfort zone initially, not being that involved in individual sports before. Um, but so went through the Olympics, Paralympics, and then thereafter, I realized it's been a great year, but I need to get back into rugby. And then I re rejoined Quinns for another couple of seasons before um, I actually moved away from there, finding some different other challenges. So what is it that interests you more? Is it the science or is it the people? My wife always chuckles about this. She, she always says she doesn't know why I became a psychologist because I'm not that interested in people. And I guess to a certain degree, that's probably true. Um, but I'm fascinated by the science behind people. And again, I, I have to say it, it's about the why. Why do people do what they do? I remember observing, always watching rugby as a, as a kid as well, just fascinated by, by why some people seem to be so calm and composed under pressure. Other people seem to be losing the plot occasionally. Then as you go through life, you realize the same thing with the people around you. Some people seem to be always on top of their game. They've got a plan. They, they know what they want. Others are struggling. And that concept fascinated me because kind of physiologically and biochemically, we seem to be fairly similar on the surface. So what's the difference between people? Why are some people getting to the top, others struggling? So there was always the part of me very interested in mental health, but also there's the other part of me that's fascinated by performance. And, and that's the thing I wanted to know, what, what distinguishes the one person from the next one? And I think once I got into psychology and I realized how much the psyche is intertwined with the neuropsychology, that you can't separate these things, suddenly the light went on for me. And the application of this, whether in sport, in business, individual, uh, it didn't matter. You started seeing a picture, at least, understanding a lot of the answers we, we still don't have, but at least we have the right questions at the moment. And this is something that, that really got me going, that there's an absolute fascination still when I meet people to understand their life story. Where do they come from? Why do they do the things what they do? Where do, where do they want to end up if you ask them about future plans as well? And I think that's something that really gets me going. And although I work hard and work is work, it's called work for a reason and not holiday. I absolutely love what I do. There's, there's not a single morning that I wake up that I dread going to work because there are no two days that are the same. There's always, you work with people, fascinating surprises. You've seen most patterns by now in all likelihood, but um, there's always a surprise. You, just as, as soon as you think you've cracked that code, you reach the point where you realize, no, there's always a curveball coming in. And how, how open are you to adopting new or different practices of psychology because there's a lot of different approaches and do you sort of take different parts and, and sort of have your own process or do you focus on one particular process yourself 
That's a really good question because in reality, if you look at it, this is the frustrating thing about psychology not being an exact science. There are over 450 schools of thought in psychology the last time I've checked. Now, that's crazy. I mean, if you look at any other profession, you'll have five or six or maybe 10 different angles of approach. So there are quite a significant number of angles you can take. In essence, I'm a scientist. So I am a very firm believer in evidence-based work. And where I found the evidence I was looking for, I was trained in a multimodal approach, um, very eclectically, where we did some psychoanalysis and we looked at person-centered approach and behavior therapy. But around cognitive behavior therapy, the light went on for me. Because suddenly when I realized you can merge this with the neuroscience behind how the brain functions and operates. Now, we're more than just the brain, obviously. But once I started seeing the connection, to me, that's something um, from an evidence-based perspective that made a difference. The key thing for me is you can't just do something and if there's a good outcome, you say what I did worked. You need to understand why it worked. So if you can't explain the mechanism of the problem and therefore the mechanism of the intervention, it's not good enough. If you can't replicate it, it's not evidence-based. And that's the something that really um, hit home with me when I started looking into the behavioral psychology and the cognitive behavioral psychology is they were for the first time ways for me to understand these things. And this is something that makes it much easier whether you, whether you do research into this or try and apply some practical work with a particular team or an individual. At least if we know what we're trying to affect in the brain, it makes it much easier to systematically and, and methodically approach these things. And most of the time, not always, unfortunately, but most of the time we tend to get good results that way. And are you confident that we know as much about the brain as is possible? No, the short answer, definitely not. I think in a hundred years from now, when we look back, we're going to laugh about what we think we know now. I think it's better than a hundred years ago because with the advancement of science, things like functional brain imaging, the fact that we can use, um, we at our institute, we, we do some research on something called NERSET technology. It's near infrared spectroscopy where we can actually measure oxygenation in the brain. So you can see which parts of the brain light up. So we know significantly more than we did a hundred years ago where it was at best a guessing game. But I think we're nowhere near where we want to be. And that's something we have to admit. So we do the best that we can with what we know, but we know there's a lot we do not know. So um, I'd, I'd love to live for another 100 years to see where we end up, where technology can take us. But at least with the bits we do have, we're going to try and do our best. And how do you feel about things like NLP? Do, they, do you fold that into your practice at all? Yes, yeah, so uh, with the things like the neuro-linguistic neuro programming, it's, it's a spin-off coming out of CBT, and I know some NLP purists will probably crucify me for saying something like this, but effectively it works at a particular level of cognition. So those type of affirmations and, and positive angles we take can definitely play a very important role. So in sports, we do use that quite a lot, but the psyche is complicated. We've, we've got multiple layers probably at least three distinctive layers of cognitions happening. And unless you kind of work through all of them and understand somebody's cognitive levels of development and potentially where they got stuck, it's unfortunately not a one size fits all. So it's, it's very much horses for courses where the right sort of therapy by the right sort of therapist for the right sort of reason needs to be applied. Otherwise, you're not going to get the results you're looking for. And in your work, you're spending a lot of time with people who understand that their performance is going to be enhanced working on their why and understanding more about how they they think that's not the, the sort of representative of the population though is it 
It's a, it's again a very great question that you're asking. Um, when when we look at what we understand from human behavior and thinking processes at the moment, only about eighteen percent of people, one eight percent of people, will have a natural ability to think about their thinking. So most of us are conditioned in a very linear style where it's stimulus response. Something happens to us and we respond. We, we don't really stop and zoom out and think about how we are thinking. Then we get a, a different part of the population who's very emotive. So it's a, we uh, kind of tongue in cheek say it's the monkey see, monkey do sort of approach where you have an emotion and you act on it. And so there's a whole range of sort of styles we have as human beings to approach the problems we face in life, which by the way, plays a very interesting role in mental health challenges as well. So at least understanding where somebody's coming from, where some of the sticking points might be and, and how to get people unstuck there becomes a big part of getting us there. But the whole notion of metacognitions, of thinking about thinking, a small percentage of the population will, will get there. That's again why as psychologists, we've, we've got work to do because w once we hold up the mirror and show people how these things work, they get it and people can change. But it's not a, a natural thing that, that somebody's gonna figure out for themselves most of the people will have to either be nudged or get a good reason to change for them to change their behavior. And what would be the impact if 100% of the population realized that there was more to thinking than the thinking that they'd been using? In a good way, I guess um, life would be a slightly better place. We'll have better emotional regulation. We'll probably have less wars and fights and um, ability to to sort of deal with your own problems and probably less mental health issues as well. Um, so that would be an ideal situation. But as human beings being fallible, that's probably never going to happen. But it doesn't mean it's going to stop us from trying to get 100% of the population at least aware of this. But there are so many fascinating, fascinating dynamics as a human being, which just unfortunately means that we can't always compensate for everything. And there will always be some of these challenges we're going to face along the, the paths we follow. And what are the challenges or the sort of core things that you're focusing on right now? What, what is it you're looking to, to sort of seek or find the answers to? At the moment, it's very much um, COVID related, uh, not quite by choice, but we kind of drawn into this. I think this morning I had my 256th webinar with uh, corporates and we've covered people in over 20 countries now with close to 7,000 people. And it's been fascinating to see that it didn't matter again which organization, country, language, geographical barrier, religion, it didn't matter. What we see at the moment is that people have significant elevated levels of anxiety, mainly as a result of the uncertainty. So uncertainty becomes a, a fascinating thing because the human mind, for evolutionary reasons and for survival, hates uncertainty. So as soon as there's uncertainty, we either fill in the information ourselves, and this is where we see a lot of conspiracy theories coming from, or we seek reassurance. Now, the problem with reassurance nowadays is we either find it on social media, which is the worst thing you can do, because the amount of misinformation actually just makes the situation worse, or the people we talk to. But then again, if you find yourself surrounded by a few depressed, anxious, and negative people, that starts to rub off on you as well. So the whole focus at the moment is looking at various organizations and sports teams and to see how do we get them through this challenging time? Because the biggest concern with the pandemic globally at the moment is we don't have a clear time perspective. We don't know is this going to be for 18 months or two years or five years and will there be continuous spikes? So trying to teach people how to obviously be aware of the dangers, but just focus on the things we have control over. And this at least gives us some form of control back in our lives and helps us to control the emotions that we experience.
It's interesting. I mean, you, you talk about uncertainty and of course the sort of flip side of that is certainty, which somewhere in between there's a happy medium because certainty sort of keeps you in a comfort zone and uncertainty certainly takes you way beyond the sort of a stretch zone. If you want to sort of say that there's sort of different levels on that. Is there, is there a way that people can adapt and move? And you were talking about the control in a, in a way that they can not just sit back on their laurels or not be in that sort of other side of extreme anxiety. Yes, I think we shouldn't confuse and confound certainty with comfort. So they are, they are different things as well. So I think being in a slight state of discomfort is always a good thing. Certainty is great because it, it helps us to sort of see that vision. We know where we're going and life will, will not always take you in a straight line. Unfortunately, there will be some detours and some hard work. But I like the idea of the discomfort, especially if it's about the short term discomfort and you know there's going to be longer term satisfaction in the process. So stretching yourself, getting yourself out of that comfort zone is a great way to progress but too much uncertainty unfortunately then sometimes can paralyze us with fear because we're so worried about the things we we might go do wrong or the things we might miss out on that we actually don't stretch the comfort zone enough to to reach something and from a, a, a performance perspective if you want to have a happy existence in life that becomes an important part to kind of try and live up to your potential and it means sometimes getting off the couch and getting out of the comfort zone and just see how far you can you can take yourself and working with so many people who have inspired you and in sport, have, have there been people's, how do I describe, that there's some kind of psyche that they have that other people don't have to take them to that extra level? Definitely. And I think in the sports domain, it's easier to sometimes spot them and it, it's been easier for me to have conversations with them. But you, you truly see some sports people um, I was watching that series on Netflix the other day, The Last Dance about Michael Jordan. And I think it's one of the, the most beautiful examples of that determination of knowing exactly what he wants, why he wants it, and what he's willing to get there. Now, we, we can't all be a Michael Jordan, but I think the key thing that stood out for me there is absolutely that why. Why, why I want to do what I do, how will I get there, and then having a plan, not just having a dream. A dream is not worth much if you can't follow this up by action. So having that plan to systematically get there. And it's, it's, it's great watching people doing that. It's inspirational. I, I find it wonderful and fascinating. And, and, and that's part of why I went into psychology is why? What's the difference? Why, why can some people do this and others not? And um, one day when I crack that code, I am going to retire. I'm going to sell that on and I'm going to have a very happy and a easy existence. But for the time being, it's about so many small factors we need to try and figure out that um, I, I can't answer that question yet as to why, but that it's there. Absolutely so. And that it's amazing to watch and inspirational and, and motivational just to see people do that. For me, that's, that's one of the most beautiful things of working in elite sports. And you referenced that particular Netflix documentary, The Last Dance, which is incredible. And, and you, we, when we spoke before, you, you said you must watch it. And I went and watched it. It's interesting. You, you also mentioned earlier about the effects of social media. I wonder what would have happened if social media had been around in that sort of era or, and how it would have affected Michael Jordan, whether they would have had the same focus that he had because it wasn't there. 
You're making such a great point on this specifically because I think that is one of the biggest challenges we're going to face going forward is the impact of social media. We actually run a workshop currently called Technology, Wellbeing and Performance where we start talking to people about the impact that the use of social media is having, not just psychologically, biochemically actually. So it starts changing the processes in the brain. So I think the new generation coming through will have a, a way bigger challenge than we had growing up in the, the 80s and the early 90s, where life was in a way fairly simple. If you made a mistake, it was kind of dealing with a mistake. You, you had a limited, limited amount of information you had to base your reactions on. Where nowadays, if you move, somebody records it on a camera, um, you can't get away from information. It finds you on your smartphone in your pocket. And the big problem with the the sheer volume of information, if I may just add two things to this, is that firstly, our brains were never designed to ignore information. It was designed to seek out and find information to the extent that if you do, your brain will reward you with a spike of dopamine, which is a, a neurotransmitter in your brain, which is pretty much part of your reward network. So we keep on seeking out these things, meaning things like technology addiction becomes a problem. But the other thing is the way it starts affecting the um, the filters through which we look at life. It's a, it's a principle they call the Wazeyati principle, which is an acronym that's short for what you see is all there is, meaning that any information you hold in your short-term memory, in the working memory, will disproportionately affect judgment, decision-making, the reactions, the behaviors that you have. And it means, therefore, that the immediate information at your disposal, either via repetition in the long run or the last thing you've encountered, will have a very big impact on how you respond in the moment. And this is one way that social media is affecting us on a relational level, on a performance level, just in general, well-being, performance, everything. And, and this is going to be a big problem going forward. People have to start paying serious attention to this. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that I'm, it's on my radar. I don't know if you've seen the documentary, The, the Social Dilemma. It's on my watch list for this coming weekend. Oh, okay. I became aware of it this week, so I'm definitely yeah. going to watch it. Yeah, absolutely. And it... It references the, the the gaming mechanism, the, the way that our brain is geared to want to have that reward. You mentioned it just earlier. And the whole scroll, when you scroll and you get the refresh, that is actually serving the brain. It, it's interesting for the brain. It wants it and it wants to keep refreshing. So you do become addicted to the, the products. And the, these algorithms are not designed for... Uh, Sort of, you know, they are designed exactly for that. You know, they're not they're not Absolutely. just designed for for the looks. It is for the the users. And one of the comments that's referenced in there is, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And that's <laughs> that's a great quote. Yeah, Definitely. it's it's quite a scary one. And mm. we're not all seeing the same information, which is interesting as well because it's all feeding off the algorithms that we are we're teaching these particular platforms about us and essentially it starts to understand more about us than we do uh, yeah you you will find it fascinating i'm sure especially with your your extra levels no of knowledge <laughs> that's great so in all the time that you've worked have, is there a particular story that stands out for you a transformation of working with someone I think one of the first ones that jumped to mind takes me back to 2012, the Olympic year. And it's a quote I use a lot with a lot of people because if we ask about the question and talk about the question of why people do what they do. Um, as part of the build-up to the Olympic Games, we um, had this privilege of um, all the, the medics got called together and we had a, a couple of social functions, et cetera. And at one of these, we had a guest speaker, Sir Reynold Fiennes, 
which I only knew from obviously his um, polar tricks that he did in Fascinating Man. And I watched a couple of documentaries on him. So um, actually on the same night, we had Roger Bannister, the first guy who broke the four-minute mile as the uh, as the host. And then um, we had Serenal Fines there. And uh, he, he's told his life story, which is absolutely fascinating, um, kind of typically the sort of stories you extract from people and just to listen to the, why he did the things he did and how his life story went. And afterwards in the Q&A in the audience, somebody asked him, um, when he's spoken about the the polar trek that he did, where I think he lost five or six of his fingers due to frostbite, and um, a member of the audience asked him, "So um, why would you do this sort of thing?" And the answer he gave there was one of the best answers I've ever heard to a question like that. He told the person that if you have to ask the question, you will never know. And it's just characters like that. They have a drive. They have this something in them that makes them do certain things that us mere mortals will, will sadly probably never know. But I think this, if you look at the great people in the world, whether it's in science, whether it's in sports, they have this particular drive in them where if you have to ask why you're going through the, the extra mile to get there, you'll probably never know. But hopefully one day we can figure out exactly what makes those people tick. And if we can start selling this, um, sort of getting it along, uh, the world might be a better and a slightly more productive place. Well, I need to leave you to keep cracking on that code. You know, keep going. <laughs> and so how would people get in contact with you, Peter, if they wanted to reach out to you? So via our Cognacity website, uh, info at cognacity.co.uk, or if you just Google us at Cognacity, C-O-G-N-A-C-I-T-Y, uh, you will find us there with the contact details. So uh, we will gladly be of assistance if we can. Let's say we've touched on the surface today, but there's a lot of uh, meat uh, on the bone we can still add. So yes, thank you very much for asking, Amy, and we'll gladly assist people where we can. Well, I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting. And I, I do feel like we have just scratched the surface, but even so managed to sort of go a little bit deeper here and there on a various few topics. Excellent. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And one final word from you, please. What would that be to the audience? Maybe on an overarching level, if we talk about well-being and performance in life, the, the single most important thing I can probably say is have a plan. People who make it to the top never do it by just winging it and hoping to get there. So have a plan, whether it's a plan for your well-being or for your performance or for building relationships. I think if you have a plan, you're always going to be a little bit better off than uh, somebody who just tries to get through life and, and see what happens. And maybe as a final thing, um, as part of that, if you look at sustainable, sustainable behavioral change, so to get there and to stay there, you will never do something because somebody else suggests it's a good idea. You will only change your behavior if you can see the why. So this is why it was such a great pleasure for me talking to you, Amy, because ultimately it's all about the why. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.